Welcome to Club Core, an interdisciplinary podcast exploring science stories. I'm your host, Dr. Angel Core, an assistant professor of neuroscience at UNC Asheville. Each episode of this podcast is created by undergraduate students enrolled in one of my courses. So join us as we delve into a variety of topics with one simple goal, to get it less wrong. Hi there, I'm Alexis. I'm a senior majoring in psychology with a minor in neuroscience. I'm Osti. I'm a senior majoring in psychology with a minor in neuroscience. I'm Kyle. I'm a junior majoring in biology and minoring in chemistry and neuroscience. And I'm Samantha, a senior here majoring in psychology with a minor in neuroscience. Lithium, the gold standard star child treatment of bipolar disorder. That is what we'll be investigating today in our podcast. It turns out lithium is not as perfect as it seems, and it can actually be quite dangerous. This is unfortunate as it's recognized as such an amazing treatment for those suffering with bipolar disorder. So what is bipolar disorder exactly? Well, there are three types. Bipolar 1 is defined by episodes of mania that last seven days at minimum, and it is possible that these manic episodes result in hospitalization due to the severity. Manic episodes are characterized by high-energy, impulsive decision-making, recklessness, and little sleep. Depressive episodes can also occur in this type, but can have mixed features of mania and depression. Bipolar 2 exhibits patterns of depressive episodes and hypomanic episodes. Hypomanic episodes are basically like diet mania. They aren't as intense as standard bipolar 1 manic episodes, but they're still pretty bad. Lastly, there's cyclothymic disorder, which is categorized as a type of bipolar disorder that features hypomanic episodes with periods of depressive symptoms that last for at least two years. We started our project with an article that explored the neurotoxicity of lithium, titled Lithium-Associated Side Effects and Neurotoxicity is Lithium Neurotoxicity Related to Iron Deposition. This article really attracted us because it is well known in the psych and neuro community that lithium is a key medicinal treatment in bipolar disorder. The effect that it could potentially be dangerous really turned our heads. Yeah, I know personally from my experience working as a psychiatric technician at Mission Psychiatric Hospital, I can attest to the miracle that lithium can often perform because some of our bipolar or unspecified mood disorder patients come in extremely manic or agitated or in a depressive state, and it's really wild to see them come in in such an extreme state, and then as they get back on their lithium and their lithium level reaches a therapeutic level, they begin to level out and stabilize completely. It really does work, and it really does help in such a way that it's clear how it earned its reputation. It's kind of sad to think that such an effective drug can have such serious side effects if you aren't lucky and fall under some of the risk factor groups. So why is lithium such an important topic? How many people actually take it? Well, lithium is a highly prescribed drug as about 14% of the population takes the drug. It can be used to treat mania, and it's one of the commonly prescribed drugs for mania, but it can also be used in conjunction with other antidepressants for the treatment of depression. Do a lot of people know about the neurotoxicity that is associated with lithium use? No. Lithium is prescribed to many people within the population with a lot of people on the medication not entirely understanding or even knowing about the neurotoxicity that comes along with it. There are millions of people who are prescribed and taking lithium. It would be beneficial for them to know what's going on with their medication and their own bodies. This could also help people make a decision on what medications they take, whether they would want to avoid lithium and pursue another less dangerous medication or take lithium. 
I think it's also important to note that the article goes over some of the side effects of lithium as well, which can help some people understand some of the risk of the drug. According to the book Lithium Toxicity by Shireen A. Hidya, Akshay Avula, and Henry Du Swoboda, which was written using research from 1997 and 2013, people using lithium who had experienced neurotoxicity from the drug were studied. The recurrence of lithium intoxication was assessed in these individuals, and 96 patients out of 1340 experienced at least one episode of lithium levels measuring at least 1.5 millimoles per liter. 77 participants had experienced 91 episodes, and of these 77 people, 26 of them needed an intensive care and 10 patients required hemodialysis. There were no deaths associated with these statistics, and the article characterizes these side effects into three groups cognitive side effects, neurological side effects, and metabolic side effects. Cognitive side effects can also include impairment in memory, motor and sensory aphasia, which is a disorder in which one is unable to interpret spoken or written speech due to damage in Wernicke's area, and apraxia, which is when a person cannot do a known movement on command. They can be willing and know how to do the movement, but are unable to perform it. Neurologically, lithium can cause tremors, and as far as metabolic side effects, patients can report weight gain, irregular heartbeat, and also kidney issues. The article labels neurotoxicity as its own separate section, where neurotoxicity with lithium was first recognized in the 80s and was known as the Syndrome of Irreversible Effectuated Neurotoxicity, or SILENT syndrome. So what did some of the symptoms associated with SILENT syndrome look like? Well, there are many associated side effects, actually. Some presented as tremors, ataxia, and dysarthia, which is caused by cerebral dysfunction. Ataxia and dysarthia aren't as well known as tremors, so ataxia is a disease in the nervous system that can resemble drunkenness. Symptoms can include slurred speech, stumbling, incoordination, and falling, which makes sense as the cerebellum is responsible for movement and coordination. Dysarthia, on the other hand, is when muscles that are responsible for speech production are damaged in some way, or weakened, or paralyzed. As a result, affected people have trouble controlling their speech due to vocal cord dysfunction and loss of control of the tongue. Neurotoxicity from lithium can also result in brainstem dysfunction, such as sensory or motor issues, impairment of consciousness, and dementia. All of these are the more common side effects of lithium neurotoxicity. Are there other rare side effects associated with it? Unfortunately, yes. More rare side effects are an eye condition that causes the eyes to move repeatedly and uncontrollably, or inflammation of the optic nerve and swelling of the optic disc. There are also two side effects heavily associated with irreversible toxicity, chorioathetosis and peripheral neuropathy. Chorioathetosis is characterized by involuntary twitching or writhing, and peripheral neuropathy is when the nerves that send and carry messages to and from the spinal cord and the brain to the rest of the body are damaged. Whoa, that's so concerning. Is everyone who takes lithium at risk of experiencing these side effects? Right? It's scary. Fortunately, it's not something that's super random, but unfortunately, there are certain groups that are more at risk than others. The article mentions several risk factors, such as age, gender, dose, um, and certain mental health diagnoses. There can also be neurological conditions, other medical conditions, and even being on other antipsychotic medications frequently will put you at a higher risk. Wait, so just taking another antipsychotic drug to alleviate symptoms of mood changes and psychosis can make you more at risk? Why is that? 
That is a great question, Kyle. This is actually because other antipsychotics can cause an increase in lithium uptake in the red blood cells. So what does the article suggest is the reason the neurotoxicity of lithium occurs? The article suggests that originally it was thought that neurotoxicity was caused by demyelination, which is when the fats and proteins that are around the nerve are damaged. However, the article that we're using states that it has been found that lithium inhibits iron ion solubility and the ability of iron ions to be released extracellularly throughout the neuron. The article suggests that these may affect the motor symptoms of bipolar disorder, such as foot tapping, pacing around, or rapid-slash-pressured speech. So how did lithium come around? Well, lithium is actually naturally occurring in certain types of water, such as geothermal waters. Before you start Googling what that is, I have the answer. Um, It's actually just groundwater, which is heated by the earth. So before lithium was used in the treatment of bipolar disorder, in the 1930s, it was used to treat uric acid diathesis and kidney stones. Although, interestingly, in 1871, a man named William Hammond attempted to use lithium bromide to treat mania. And when was it used in the way we know it to be used now? Well, lithium carbonate was used in 1894 in Denmark by Frederick Lange to treat melancholic depression, and in 1949 at a hospital in Australia, John Cade actually hypothesized that uric acid could play a role in mania and psychotic episodes. Cade is sometimes referred to as the father of lithium. In his research, he treated 10 patients with lithium citrate along with lithium carbonate. Some of the patients within the study reacted well to the treatments they were given, but Later, John Cade gave up his research for lithium treatments after having a patient die from an apparent lithium toxicity. So it sounds like lithium was pretty popular in other countries. When was it first used in the United States? From what I know, the United States decided to start using lithium more frequently in the 1960s. Samuel Gershon and Arthur Uweiler published the first article from the United States on the clinical uses of lithium. Lithium wasn't yet approved by the Food and Drug Administration until the 1970s. Even though it wasn't approved by the FDA, it was still prescribed for the treatment of depression and mania. So why did it take so long for the United States to get on board with lithium? Well, the blood levels for lithium were guesswork prior to the Coleman flame photometer being produced. This was something that could determine the concentration of metals such as lithium. At first, doctors from the U.S. were very skeptical of lithium's effectiveness in treating bipolar disorder because of the guesswork, though Australia was on board as well as many European countries and even Canada. Currently, after years of trial and error, lithium is still prescribed for both mania and depression. This prescription can depend on the prescriber along with the diagnosis that the patient has. And in the past decade or so, the patients being prescribed lithium have been calling into question the necessity and risk, especially with the effects that lithium neurotoxicity can have. Do you think this is because people believe the drug may be abused? Like with many psychiatric drugs, there's an issue with abuse and addiction. For example, many benzodiapines have issues with abuse. Even though lithium has shown more harmful side effects, it isn't a controlled substance? Controlled substances are classified into DEA schedules based on the substance's medical applications and the likelihood of addiction and abuse. Since those being treated with lithium do not show any signs of addiction of abuse of the drug, it hasn't been assigned to any schedules by the United States or the United Nations. Even though it doesn't have abuse potential, there are other side effects of lithium that may impact someone's decision to take the drug. 
Women in particular are at risk when taking lithium as it can cause fertility issues. What kind of fertility issues can it cause? It can affect the ability to get pregnant along with affect pregnancies if taken by someone who is pregnant. One study found that the babies of women who are taking lithium within the first trimester were 2 to 2.5% more likely to have cardiac malformations. This is scary because people are dependent on lithium to function. This is true. This is exactly why I opted for a different mood stabilizer a couple of years ago. I have a disorder kind of similar to bipolar disorder known as borderline personality disorder. When my psychiatrist first suggested a mood stabilizer, his first suggestion was lithium, and he warned me of the risk and assured me it would probably just be temporary, maybe three years. I opted for a different drug because I was concerned that lithium would help me so much that I would become dependent on it to function normally and wouldn't be able to have children one day. Thankfully, we were able to settle on something different that helps me and doesn't pose those types of risks. Wow, I had no idea that it could affect pregnancies and even future fertility that much. I do want to circle back to dependency, however. What does it mean to be dependent on this drug to function? Lithium is not addictive, but people can become dependent on it because it helps alleviate the symptoms of mania. Without the prescription, many people with manic symptoms will lapse back into their experiences before they were prescribed lithium. This also happens with other generalized things such as caffeine because of the um, body relying on it. It helps people who are on this medication to function similar to how a neurotypical person would. And there have been many studies that show mania can increase after stopping lithium. When people are on a medication, their body adjusts to its presence, such as producing less of a neurotransmitter or reducing the uptake of certain elements, such as lithium. When the medication is stopped, the body relies on the medication and the previous source of lithium, meaning there is a chemical imbalance which can result in increased mania after stopping lithium. A study published by ArchGen Psychiatry had shown that over 50% of patients taken off of lithium had episodes of mania within 10 weeks of discontinuation. So, while the FDA approves of the usage of lithium to treat bipolar disorder and mania, are there any other major alternatives? Of course. While lithium is a more traditional mood stabilizer, there are other more first-line treatments for mania. For example, second-generation antipsychotics, or SGAs. In fact, since second-generation antipsychotics haven't shown evidence for the toxicity or pregnancy risks that have been seen in lithium treatments, they are typically the first choice in the treatment of mood disorders. So, how can we tell if someone should be treated with lithium or an SGA? Are both treatments used for the same conditions? Well, in a study done by Athena Co. from the Journal of Child and Adolescent Psychopharmacology, patients with bipolar 1 or 2 were observed for differences and similarities throughout their treatment. In the study, all patients were treated with an SGA initially, with lithium being a secondary treatment option if the patient didn't respond to the SGA positively. So what did they find? They had found that significantly more patients who had bipolar 1 had not responded positively to the SGA treatment and had instead experienced a lifetime exposure to lithium. Alternatively, patients who had bipolar 2 were much more likely to respond positively to an SGA treatment and were much less likely to be treated with lithium in turn. How does lithium work exactly in treating bipolar disorder? Lithium and its use for people with bipolar disorder is a complex topic for those not well-versed in neuropharmacology. Lithium controls and inhibits excitatory neurotransmission, meaning they increase the chance that a neuron will fire by decreasing presynaptic dopamine activity and inactivating postsynaptic G-proteins. 
This basically means that, during manic episodes, the production and efficiency of dopamine is diminished. Dopamine is the neurotransmitter that is associated with pleasure and reward. This also means that the proteins that open or close ion channels are not working as efficiently. So lithium helps control the changes between the high and the low of dopamine levels? Essentially, lithium also increases GABA levels, which reduces the activity of the neutrons, and this effectively reduces glutamate levels in an individual. Individuals with bipolar disorder have lower functioning GABA production, which leads to a lot of the issues associated with bipolar disorder. So, essentially, lithium helps level out the different neurotransmitters that control pleasure and the activity of neurons which are affected by bipolar disorder, but why is it important for people to know and understand these things? I believe our main article about lithium neurotoxicity is crucial to a better understanding of lithium. The drug is essentially the poster child of four bipolar treatments. Our article even goes as far as to call it the gold standard. As such, I think it's very important for people to understand that there can be real risks. Yeah, and it can also help people who are part of those higher-risk groups realize that they are at risk, and it can lead them in a direction where they're able to talk to their doctor and make their doctor aware that they're part of these certain groups that may be higher risk. I know oftentimes people will leave out parts of their medical history or not bring up something to their doctor because they may not realize it could put them at risk. It's always better to know and be aware of it so that you can have a discussion with your healthcare providers. Absolutely. Communication and understanding are really important. I think the people who have the hardest time with disclosing information to their doctor are younger people. Some of the research we have seen has shown that different age groups can vary significantly in their response to lithium treatments. For example, an article published by the Journal of Child and Adolescent Psychopharmacology had addressed the prescription of lithium between adolescents and adults. Is it different in the effect that it has, or what makes it different? Well, it's actually how doctors prescribe the drug. The research done in the article shows that generally when patients are introduced to the drug sooner and continue on it consistently, they show better progress in mood stabilization. However, because of risks involved with drugs, it seems that doctors are using lithium as sort of a last resort for this age group. They tend to reserve lithium for severe cases, or they try and start them on alternative mood stabilizers, and then use lithium if those prove ineffective. It definitely seems like this sort of research is beneficial for those who might be considering starting a lithium treatment for bipolar disorder. I think our research can sort of shed a light on the positives and negatives associated with this sort of treatment, as well as any alternative treatment options available to them. And I think it's also important to know if you're someone who takes lithium or you may have to take lithium at some point and you're concerned about any of these risks that we've gone over, don't freak out or anything. Not everybody has the same experience on medication and lithium might actually work well for you. Just make sure to voice your concerns to a professional such as a psychiatrist and they might be able to ease your concerns or they may be able to even switch you to a different medication altogether if you do develop any of the side effects. Also, if you are someone taking lithium, make sure you have a conversation with your healthcare providers about how to take your medications properly, whether that falls into a set schedule or when it is taken in relation to other medications. It's worth noting that medications often take longer to go into effect than an individual expects, especially as it differs from person to person. Definitely, and if you're concerned with any side effects you are experiencing or the lack of expected effects, continue a conversation with your healthcare provider to discuss your concerns. Thank you for listening. Club Court is produced by a multidisciplinary team of students at UNC Asheville. 
with sound engineering support by undergraduate Kat Sawyer. Jessica Fox, a UNCA graduate, wrote our theme music. Special thanks to the UNCA Video Production and Media Design Lab for their help with this project, and thank you for listening. You can find show notes, including episode credits and links to the research discussed in this episode at clubcore.com episodes. If you like this episode, please share, subscribe, and review. And if you have a question you'd like us to explore, drop us a line. You can find me, Angel Core, on all the socials at Club Core. We'd love to tell your science stories so we can all get it less wrong. Until next time. <laughs>